Because the kind of righteousness we need to have a relationship with the living God is absolute, holy, undefiled righteousness. That's why James could say that if you obeyed the whole law and you broke just one commandment, it's like you were guilty of breaking them all. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we moved last week into chapter 10, in which the Apostle Paul describes and explains Israel's rejection of Jesus as their promised Messiah. When we left off, we had been looking at the importance of telling people about Jesus. And we'll pick up there today in a message entitled, Rescue the Perishing. Take your Bibles, would you, this morning and turn to Romans, the 10th chapter. If you're with us for the first time for the last couple of years, we've been working our way through the book of Romans. It's rightly been called the Constitution of Christianity. And it's out of that Constitution today that I want to speak on the subject, Rescuing the Perishing. The famous blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn that many of you know. It's the title of this morning's message, Rescue the Perishing. If you know her life when she was just six weeks old, She had an eye problem, and they improperly gave her a dressing that ended up permanently blinding her. At the age of eight, she received Christ as her personal Savior, and she was determined that her blindness would not be a source of bitterness or resentment, but that God would somehow use it for the glory of God. She lived until the age of 95, and she wrote thousands and thousands of hymns many of which we still sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I am thine, O Lord. Praise him, praise him, Jesus, my blessed Redeemer. He hideth my soul, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. And of course, rescue the perishing. The history of that hymn goes back to 1869. Few days before she attended an evangelistic meeting in a rescue mission, William Doane, who was basically the person who typically took her words and put them to music, gave her the title for a new hymn, Rescue the Perishing. And as she sat in that meeting, hundreds of men were there, and the evangelist that night said, mainly to drunks and street people, there's someone present here who needs to respond to the gospel, and this may be your very last chance to be rescued. And as she heard that, God gave her these words, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. And as Christians, we're commanded to rescue the perishing. But how many of us really weep? When was the last time we shed a tear for a single lost person? See, a lot of Christians today, they think that's just kind of old-fashioned. And unlike our Savior who wept over the city of Jerusalem, we no longer weep because our hearts are so filled with the entertainments of the world. Well, Paul's heart was broken for a people. And we see that here in Romans, the 10th chapter. Now, last time we finished in verse 11... But I want us to read, though we're going to focus just on verses 11 to 15, I want us to back up into verse 9, and we're going to read all the way through 17 so we get a flavor in the flow of this passage. Follow along, would you? Romans chapter 10, beginning now in verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how will they believe in him? whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Great Commission, as many of you know, is found in five different places in the New Testament. Now, between our two services and our service there in Bluffton, we have over 200 Christians who've been baptized in the last 12 months. And when I use the term Great Commission, you don't really know what I'm referring to. So let me define some terms here. The words Great Commission are not found in the Bible. It's like the word Trinity or eternal security or original sin. Those are just words that summarize great biblical truths. And really, the word Great Commission is a rather recent term in the history of the church. It goes back to about 1650, as best we can tell. But the term originated out of Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus broadens the commission. Now, Matthew 28 is given in contrast to the limited commission. Let me remind you of the limited commission that Jesus gave earlier in his ministry. It's recorded in Matthew 10. These 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Their limited commission is not our commission. Initially, Jesus said, I don't want you to go to all the nations of the world. I want you to go to one people, namely the Jewish people. And God had a reason for that to emphasize and underscore that he is a promise-keeping God, that salvation is from the Jews. And he wanted the Jewish people to know that the Messiah had come because they were to be a light to the Gentiles. And of course, as you know, they did not for the most part respond And so in Matthew 28, Jesus broadens the commission. And so we call it the Great Commission to distinguish it from the limited commission of chapter 10 of Matthew. Let me read the Great Commission in the place where it is most often quoted, Matthew 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now please note, he does not say go and do discipleship. That's the way it is often interpreted in our day. He says go and make disciples. And unfortunately, this verse is often misunderstood and wantingly understood by many people who do not want to evangelize and who want to hide under the banner of discipleship. But the word disciple in this context is synonymous with converts. Go there and for 
make converts or disciples of all nations. And what do you do with these new converts? You baptize them, not in the names, plural, but in the name, because we affirm that God is one in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one, but He exists in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we don't stop with baptizing them and leave them floundering as new believers. We are to teach them all that Christ has commanded, and that's summarized today in the book that we call the Bible. And of course, this command is not simply apostolic. It's not just for the apostles. It is for every Christian, for the promise makes no sense, for lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The end of the age has not yet come. We are waiting for the age to end when Jesus comes back. Now, God's primary instrument, according to the New Testament, for fulfilling the Great Commission is His local church. And it will be ultimately fulfilled. Christ promised that in Matthew 24, 14. He said in the Olivet Discourse that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. So He is going to accomplish it with or without us. The question is, will he use you? Will he use me? Will he use us corporately as a local church to pull it off? I want him to, and I hope you do as well. Now, if you've been saved, if you truly have met the Lord, someday, among other things that God will evaluate your life for in heaven, you're saved by grace, you are evaluated by your service, but one thing that God will look at will be your faithfulness to the Great Commission. Were you involved in the Great Commission? And of course, this morning we have a snapshot of the evangelistic side, the first command, make disciples or make converts. Now, I think most of you know the context of our chapter by now. There are three major divisions to Romans, doctrinal, national, practical. We're in the national section, 9 through 11. In chapter 9, he deals with Israel's election, how God in the past chose them out of all the nations of the world to bring the promised Messiah because salvation is from the Jew. But of course, because of their rejection, here in the 10th chapter, he's explaining Israel's present disobedience, their present unbelief, their present rejection, why it was that they turned against Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul affirms it's the same reason millions of people today do. Notice how the chapter opens. The context is so important because what we're going to look at in terms of rescuing the perishing and the verses we want to focus on will make no sense to you unless you really understand where we've been. And I know too, we learn by repetition, Christ taught by repetition, and Peter told us as pastors, we're to repeat ourselves. So let me refresh your mind where we've been in these first 11 verses. He says in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's saying more than anything else in this world, it would please me so much to see my brethren, my people, come to know Jesus Christ. And I find it very interesting that Paul prayed for lost people and he had an earnest desire to win lost people. Now, wherever you come down on the doctrine of sovereign election that we spent eight weeks dealing with from the ninth chapter, wherever you come down, if your desire to pray for those who are lost, and if your zeal to go and try to give them that message they need to hear has been diminished or obliterated, then your understanding of sovereign election is wrong. He says in verse 2, for I testify about them that is my Jewish people, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
And they're like a lot of religious people today. They're zealous for God, but it's not a God-directed zealousness for not knowing, verse 3, about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. They failed to acknowledge as a nation that they were sinful. They hid behind their privileges. And they refused to see their need for salvation. Why? Because they believed in themselves. And so we read all in verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Please notice, when a person works to earn his own righteous standing before God and does not subject himself to the righteousness that God gives by grace as a gift, God says they are in rebellion. The term not subject is actually a military term in the first century where a man put himself under the authority of his leader. And these people refuse to surrender themselves to the righteousness of God. So they have a knowledge, but their knowledge is incomplete. Oh, they knew the Bible. They had verses memorized. They faithfully attended the synagogue or the temple every single Saturday. They had scribes who were brilliant, who expounded the Old Testament. They were given prestigious titles like rabbi or master. But they had blinded themselves in their own self-righteousness. And so in verse 4, Paul reminds us, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we studied that very carefully, and we saw that Christ is the end of the law. All that the law promised, all of its types, all of its illustrations, all of its sacrifices pointed to Messiah, and Jesus is the end. He has obtained that righteousness, that standing that we now can have to those not who try, not to those who behave, but to those who believe. Then in verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Both Paul and Moses taught that a man could not be saved by human effort, but he could be saved only by the righteousness that God gave. And so in Galatians 3, Moses has cursed the man who doesn't obey every command. Because the kind of righteousness we need to have a relationship with the living God is absolute, holy, undefiled righteousness. That's why James could say that if you obeyed the whole law and you broke just one commandment, it's like you were guilty of breaking them all. So Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on that law, shall live by that righteousness. If you want to go to heaven by practicing your righteousness, you better live by it and you better live by it perfectly. But Paul has already dismissed and discounted that false way of thinking. He quoted Moses in Romans 4 when he took us all the way back to Abraham. And he showed us that Abraham was justified not by works, but by grace alone. And so the first human author of the Bible affirmed that a man was not saved by human effort, but only by the grace of God. So it doesn't surprise us that 16 times in the book of Romans, Paul quotes Moses. Now look at verse 6. But the righteousness, based not on works, but based on faith, speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now last time we studied that Old Testament quotation from Deuteronomy 30 very carefully. And if you remember Moses' point to the people of Israel just before he died, was that God's ways and God's laws 
And God's commandments were not so mysterious for them that they had to go somewhere looking for them. That the law was right there, it was in their mouth and it was in their hearts because God had given it to them through Moses. And Paul takes that Old Testament experience and if you remember, he applies it to Jesus Christ. He is simply saying, brethren, we don't need to send a messenger to heaven to say, God, come on down and tell us what to do. We don't need to send a messenger down to the abyss and say, come on up and help us. You know, God, planet Earth needs a Savior. Come on down. No need to. You don't need to ascend into heaven to bring Messiah down. Why? Because he's already come down. Or who will ascend into the abyss? And to the place of the grave, that is to bring Christ up. We don't need to send someone down into the abyss, into the gloomy recesses of the grave and death and hell. Why? Because Jesus has already died. He's already come up from the grave. He's come down from heaven. He descended into hell. He's been raised from the dead. So we don't need to say, Go, oh God, where are you? Come down from heaven. We don't need to say, Oh, Lord Jesus, come up from the grave. Because he's already come down and he's already come up. The word is near you, very near, Moses said. And Paul, in quoting Moses, says it's, it's in your heart. It's in your mouth. Look at verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The message of salvation that we, meaning Paul and all the apostles are preaching, is very near you. How close was it? Well, Moses said it was in your heart, it was in your mouth. And Paul affirms that to the Jewish people of his generation. You say, I'm not a Christian. How can you say the word is in my heart? I'm not a Christian. How can you say it's in my mouth? Because I just preached it there just like Moses preached it to his people and as Paul did to his generation. I just explained a moment ago what both Moses and Paul taught that salvation, righteousness is not earned or achieved, it's received by the grace of God through faith in the Messiah. And so, does that mean I'm saved because the word is in my heart and in my mouth? Not at all. It's like a dormant seed sitting there waiting, longing to spring to life. But that's not yet salvation. Something must happen. But once the word comes into your heart, once the word comes into your mouth, your heart needs to say amen to that word. And when your heart says amen to that word, your mouth, the Bible says, will confess, give evidence, because the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And so he says in verse 9, look at it, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, not Jesus as Lord. Remember, we saw that little word as is italicized. It's not in the original. It's just there to make it read a little smoother in Greek. But literally, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Paul is saying this word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. But it's like a dormant seed. You must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and then you will be saved. And we studied carefully the relationship last time between the heart and the mouth. I'll, I spent 30 minutes on it. I'll spend one minute on them this morning. For the heart, he says in verse 10, notice, a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. Please notice the interplay between verses 9 and 10 between the heart and the mouth. In verse 9, he speaks of confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart. In verse 10, he totally reverses it 
and he speaks of believing with the heart and then confessing with the mouth. And in verse 11, he doesn't mention the mouth or the heart at all. He just speaks of believing. So again, sort it out in your thinking. Verse 10, for with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. We study that these two statements of confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart are not separate thoughts, but equal thoughts. With a heart, he says, with a, with a heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. The English Standard Version says, with a heart, one believes and is justified or declared righteous. That's a substitute word in the New Testament for salvation, if you remember from Romans, the third chapter. So with a heart, with a heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness, resulting in salvation. And with a mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. These two statements in the mind and heart of Paul are absolutely inseparable. It's the flip side of the same coin. That's why a mute person can be saved. I was in Ukraine recently and ministering to a large group of deaf people. And one guy, all he could go is, oh, oh, oh. That's all he could do. He couldn't say, Jesus is Lord. Does that mean mute people cannot be saved? Listen, any church, when they describe the plan of salvation with four words, repent, believe, confess, be baptized, have typically, not always, but typically have distorted the plan of salvation. And so they would say, well, first you have to believe, and then the salvation is completed when you confess. And they give two independent meanings to believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth when God makes them one solid, brought-together meaning. No, when you truly believe with the heart, you will, if you're able physically, confess with the tongue. Because the tongue and the heart are connected together in Scripture. So the Apostle Paul is not saying that salvation is partially through believing and then completed by some public confession of faith. That's a fruit of salvation. It's not the means to salvation. Just like baptism is not a means to salvation, as the Church of Christ and Christian church denomination teach, which is a different gospel, another gospel. It is a fruit of salvation, something you should do after you are saved. And so verse 11 for the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Now that's the context. And if we understand that, it just becomes so cool what God unfolds in the next few verses. Again, the title of the message is Rescuing the Perishing. And if you want God to use you to rescue the perishing then listen carefully to three principles that must be yours. You must own them. And again, if you haven't seen anyone come to Christ in the last few years, when I say that on occasion, it's not to make you feel guilty. I say that because the church in America is declining. 75% of the churches in America are declining. You've got some of these big super mega churches, most of which stand for nothing. So the largest mega church in Atlanta, the pastor will have a homosexual still in a homosexual lifestyle and his homosexual partner watching him when he baptizes them every week. And we'll do anything to get people to come into the church. 
and to distort the gospel of God's message. God wants anybody and everybody to come to the church, but to become a member, baptized as an emblem of your faith, you need to be first converted, and that presupposes you are willing to recognize sin as sin and call it evil as God teaches. So if you haven't seen God use you, He wants to use you. And I want God to use you, and I want Him to use me, and I want us to use Him to use us corporately as a church because He is going to fulfill His great commission. The question becomes, what role will we play? So three simple principles. Principle number one, the invitation of the gospel is impartial. The invitation of the gospel is impartial. Look at now at verse 12. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now, we've seen that phrase, for there is no distinction in one other place in Romans. Do you remember where? All the way back in Romans chapter 3. It introduces Romans 6.23. In fact, it's the main thought in those two verses. Now, we have to divide our verses to help us to find our way around sometimes in the Bible, and that's extremely useful. But sometimes we divide the thought that's being introduced. And so by way of introduction into verse 23, he says, for there is no distinction. Let me read the two verses together. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He has just described that you cannot earn righteousness by good works, but you need the righteousness of God because that's the kind of righteousness, not human righteousness, that falls short. The kind of righteousness we need is the kind of righteousness that God gives through the cross as a gift. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when God looks down on the human race, Paul is bringing to a conclusion the argument of three chapters, there's no distinction. Whether you are the hardcore pagan idolater of chapter one, whether you are the moral, respectable, religious man of chapter two, whether you are the God-believing Jew in the second half of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3, but still lost, it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, African, European, Asian or Indian, educated, uneducated, rich or poor, religious or non-religious, in God's eyes it doesn't make any difference. There is no distinction. All fall short. All miss the mark of the glory and righteousness of God. As Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray each to his own way. And so the impartiality of the gospel is brought out in this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there are people all across our planet today who are trying to come to grips with the truth in this verse and the guilt that is in their hearts. Some are fighting and suppressing and denying that guilt. But denying it doesn't change its reality. Others are searching and wondering, how can I find the forgiveness of God? And no one has shared with them the eternal good news of how to escape an eternal judgment in hell. They don't know the answer to how can I be right with God. Only Christianity says there is nothing you can do to assure because it is trusting in Christ's atoning sacrifice alone that we are saved. 
and we'll pick up on that tomorrow. If you would like to hear this message again, you can do so using the Search the Scriptures app, available for tablets and smartphones at the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store for Android devices. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org, and if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM52. And when you contact us, please consider helping support this ministry. It is through the prayers and financial gifts to search the scriptures that we're able to continue to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our message, Rescue the Perishing. Join us then as we search the scriptures.